John Malarkey, um, Head of Philosophy, whatever that might mean, at the Philosophy Department at University of Dundee, and uh, welcome you all here. It's great, uh, what I gather, it's been a great conference so far, and, and it's only halfway over, so anything could happen, but presumably it's going to get even better. And uh, at this juncture, personally, I'd like to thank you all for coming, but also to thank the organisers, Mike Burns and Brian Smith, who have been doing a really great job so far. Excellent work. Okay, super. So, um, starting straight away with uh, this morning's uh, first key speaker, and we're very glad to have um, Professor Adrian Johnson coming from us. Uh, he works at the Philosophy Department, Professor there at the University of New Mexico, Albuquerque, and I think he's generally happy with the description of being a Zizek scholar and a post-Lacanian materialist, yes. or a thinker of post-Lacanian materialism. He's got a, a voluminous CV, quite intimidating. Um, one work, a lot coming out very recently, um, Time Driven, uh, Metapsychology and the Splitting of the Drive, 2008, followed up in the same year. You, see, you like to publish two books a year, which is... <laughs> oh, well, actually, Time Driven is 2005, so 2005. There was a, there's a delay, and then 2008 is oh, the next one. Right, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. So Ontology, A Transcendental Materialist Theory of Subjectivity, 2008, and uh, most recently, a number of works, um, one of which is already out on Badieu, and that is uh, both, coming, both with Northwestern University Press, Badieu, Zizek, and Political Transformations, The Cadence of Change. Yes. That's Northwestern, yes. 2009. And there's another book on Badieu coming. Yes, Badieu and Related Figures, and, and related Northwestern figures. is probably uh, the publisher that will do that one. Super. Yeah. Okay, so clearly um, very adept at this field of continental philosophy. And the talk Adrian is going to give to us this morning is entitled Naturalism or Antinaturalism, No Thanks, Both Are Worse, Science, Materialism, and Slavoj Zizek. I would like to thank John for his kind introduction and also uh, wholeheartedly second his expression of gratitude to the conference organizers. Uh, you know, Michael and Brian have done a wonderful job coordinating with them in terms of some of the complexities of my travel arrangements and all of the logistical details has been easy and a pleasure. Uh, and I greatly appreciate the invitation to come here and uh, to visit uh, with all of you. So thank you very much. That said, I'll begin. Nobody has done more to revive the fortunes of materialism today than Slavoj Žižek. Through innovative heterodox interweavings of what could be dubbed in Leninist fashion the three sources of Žižekianism, that is, German idealist philosophies, Marxist political theory, and Freudian Lacanian psychoanalysis, Žižek aims to articulate an account of the irreducible subject compatible with the basis provided by a non-eliminative materialist ontology. To be more precise, his transcendental materialism seeks to delineate how the negativity of cogito-like subjectivity is internally generated out of material being. He insists that this materialism, the one true version, must be founded upon a certain interpretation of Lacan's dictum declaring that, quote-unquote, the big other does not exist an interpretation according to which the ultimate Grund hypothesized at the level of ontology should be envisioned as a lone, inconsistent imminence, riddled with gaps, and deprived of the wholeness provided by such others as the theological idea of God or the cosmological idea of nature with a capital N. The absence of such unity within being, 
a unity which would be a stifling, subject-squelching closure, is what permits the material genesis of more than material subjects. That is to say, this lack of underlying cohesion as a barred reel is a contingent ontological condition of possibility for the emergence of transontological subjectivity. As Zizek reiterates recently, quote, the basic axiom of today's materialism is for me the ontological incompleteness of reality, end quote. He goes on to propose in the same text that, quote, a true materialism not only asserts that only material reality really exists, but has to assume all the consequences of what Lacan called the non-existence of the big other, end quote. All of this is part of his solution to a philosophically significant problem he poses. Quote, what ontology does freedom imply? End quote. Zizek's parallel ontology and theory of subjectivity, the former being reverse engineered out of the latter, raise a series of interesting concatenated questions crucial to the future of materialism in contemporary theory. To begin with, what sort of material is posited by Zizek as the groundless ground of not whole being? What connection, if any, is there between this material and notions of nature associated with various versions of naturalism? Assuming that there indeed is some manner of relation between Zizekian ontologically primary matter, however ephemerally disappearing, and what is imprecisely referred to as nature, in other words, this is to presume that, as Lacan would put it, materialism is, quote-unquote, not without its naturalism. What can and should the relationship be between materialist philosophy and the so-called natural sciences, namely the empirical and experimental physical sciences? Asked differently, how, if at all, ought philosophical and scientific materialisms to affect each other in terms of both their conceptual contents and methodological procedures. Supposing they rightfully affect each other, what obligations and constraints do theoretical materialism and the sciences place upon one another? Specifically, is a materialist philosophy responsible to and limited by the physical sciences? Even more specifically, is a materialist account of subjects, in whatever might be the ways, somehow answerable to the life sciences? in particular, evolutionary and neurobiological studies of human beings. These queries, orbiting around the significant core matter of the rapport between theoretical and empirical materialisms, are at the very heart of a freshly started debate between Zizek and myself. This debate began with an article of mine entitled The Misfeeling of What Happens, Slavoj Zizek, Antonio Damasio, and a Materialist Account of Affects, in an issue of the journal Subjectivity devoted to Zizek's work and his response to this contribution, among others, in the same journal issue. The present text is my reply to his response, a reply guided by the questions enumerated above. In order properly to frame this reply to Zizek, rapidly sketching its contextual backdrop is necessary. The article, The Misfeeling of What Happens, was extracted from my half of a book manuscript Kathleen Malibu and I finished writing together not too long ago, tentatively entitled Autoaffection and Emotional Life, Psychoanalysis and Neurobiology. This article consisted in part of an assessment of Zizek's Lacan-inspired criticisms of Damasio's neuroscientific depictions of affective life laid out in the fourth chapter of his 2006 tome, The Parallax View, 
Succinctly stated, the verdict of this assessment was that Damasio is not nearly so guilty of being quite as unpsychoanalytic, so at odds with analytic thinking, as Zizek charges him with being. In establishing this case contra Zizek, I attempted to show that discoveries alighted upon in the overlapping fields of affective neuroscience and evolutionary biology offer invaluable components for a materialist account of subjectivity faithful to the essential tenets of Freudian-Lacanian theory. While granting the correctness and perspicacity of many of Zizek's indictments, in which Damasio's fellow brain investigator Joseph Ledoux and the neurosciences as a whole come under carefully directed fire, I argued there is elsewhere that a truly materialist psychoanalytic metapsychology is obligated to reconcile itself with select findings of the life sciences. Of course, this reconciliation should be dialectical, involving mutual modifications between these disciplines, albeit without any formal dogmatic determination in advance of the delicate calibration of what is likely to be the usually uneven balance between the theoretical and empirical dimensions of this dialectic in the ongoing pursuit of its unfolding. As a number of his interventions reveal, Zizek is hardly averse or unsympathetic to attempts at a rapprochement between psychoanalysis and the sciences. Nonetheless, I alleged in the misfeeling of what happens that his critical treatments of the life sciences in the parallax view, as well as in 2008's In Defense of Lost Causes, rely at certain moments on a sharp dichotomy between the natural and the anti-natural that these sciences have undermined empirically over the course of the past several decades and that psychoanalytic metapsychology ought not to invoke theoretically. Before presenting and responding to Zizek's replies to me, I feel compelled to highlight an aspect of the place from which I respond here. Already in Zizek's ontology, I detected and problematized instances when Zizek appears to deviate from his own version of materialism, a materialism resting on Lacan's La Grande d'Autre n'existe pas as a central ontological principle, whether this other be God, nature, history, society, or whatever else along these capitalized lines. Of special relevance to the debate, hopefully to be advanced productively by this intervention, are my hesitations with respect to his occasional talk of their being, in addition to the two dimensions of nature and culture, some sort of underived third vector, whether labeled the night of the world, the death drive, the vanishing mediator, etc., some sort of underived third vector as the root source of what comes to be subjectivity proper. On my view, as first expressed in Zizek's ontology, a view to be further clarified and sharpened below, Zizek's periodic summonings of a mysterious, neither natural nor cultural force as an arguably under or unexplained supplement to his ontology are both incompatible with an authentically materialist materialism as well as superfluous considering his Lacanian renditions of nature and culture as equally barred others, qua inconsistent, conflict-ridden, and so on. In these disagreements, I find my situation to involve being caught between two Zizeks, as it were. However accurate, justifiable, or not, I experience myself as a voice speaking on behalf of a systematic Zizek and against another Zizek who strays from his own best philosophical insights, instead of as a critic intervening from a position purely external to Zizek's body of thought. 
As a Lacanian, he hopefully won't object in principle to having his subjectivity split. Zizek launches his rebuttal of my article, The Misfeeling of What Happens, by vehemently asserting that any notion of the unconscious able to be extrapolated from Damasio's reflections would have to exclude key features of the Freudian-Lacanian psychoanalytic unconscious. On the Freudian hand, the Damasian unconscious leaves no room for anything quote-unquote beyond the pleasure principle, namely the infamous Todestrieb, so dear to Zizek's heart. On the Lacanian hand, the non-conscious layers of Damasio's embodied mind allegedly lack in their theoretical descriptions provided by him, the mediators of the big other quasi-symbolic order. Zizek also repeats a Lacanian line integral to his critique of Damasio in the parallax view, contained in a section titled Emotions Lie, or Damasio is Wrong, a line maintaining that, quote, for Freud, emotions cheat with the exception of anxiety, end quote. As he notes in fairness, I too acknowledge a number of contrasts between the analytic and neuroscientific unconsciouses. Indeed, although I sought to narrow the rift Zizek sees yawning between, on the one side, Freud and Lacan, and on the other side, Damasio and Ledoux, I want to underscore that I in no way intended to close it all together. For instance, I concur that the death drive or an equivalent isn't explicitly integrated into Damasio's picture although I drew attention to sites within the Damasian apparatus where there are receptive, albeit unexploited, openings for distinctively psychoanalytic concepts, such as the Todestrieb, that can and should be inserted at those precise loci. I'm less ready to grant that Damasio's and Ledoux's conceptions of everything other than self-conscious awareness are utterly devoid of acknowledgments of the influences stemming from what Lacan christens the symbolic order, Both Damasio and Ledoux recognize and discuss the role of linguistic mediation in the phenomena they study. Of course, Lacan's and Zizek's multivalent uses of the phrase big other refer to much more than just language, so it must immediately be conceded that certain aspects of this other don't find adequate expression in affective neuroscience, a la the two researchers currently under consideration. Comparing and contrasting Freud, Lacan, Damasio, and Ledoux aside, Zizek adds on the heels of the above that, quote, I tend to agree with Kathleen Malibu that the neuronal unconscious and the Freudian unconscious are not only different, but incompatible, end quote. However, Zizek's agreement with Malibu on this topic ends here and goes no further. For him, to affirm the split of incommensurability between the analytic and neuroscientific versions of the unconscious is also to affirm the autonomy of the former vis-a-vis the latter, or even the former's right to correct the latter without being reciprocally corrected by the latter in turn. That is, the status of the analytic unconscious as a theoretical object is more or less independent of the empirical findings of the neurosciences. For her, this same affirmation dictates the opposite, namely, the task of thoroughly transforming psychoanalysis under the influence of contemporary neurobiological investigations. That is, the independence of the analytic unconscious as a theoretical object is emphatically denied. Observing the profound disagreement beneath the facade of consensus between Zizek and Malibu provides an opportunity for me to highlight that I take a stance in between these two poles. From this dialectical perspective, Freudian-Lacanian metapsychology, to varying extents depending on the specific concepts concerned therein, is quote-unquote relatively autonomous, 
to resort to a handy but tricky Marxist turn of phrase, relatively autonomous in relation to the sciences. And yet, this variable degree independence is far from exempting psychoanalysis, especially if it's of a sincere materialist bent, from a duty to be plastic in Malibu's precise sense as a combination of firmness and flexibility, from a duty to be plastic in connection with these other disciplines. Additionally, the shape of this plasticity always should be determined concretely in each instance of a potential point of convergence and or conflict between the analytic and the scientific, that is, in a non-a priori fashion. Zizek proceeds to claim that, quote, for Johnston, the denaturalization of the human animal, which takes place when the human animal is caught in the network of the symbolic order, should not be conceived as a radical break with nature, end quote. A lot hinges on how one construes the phrase radical break. Insofar as Zizek and I share a notion of subjectivity extrapolated from emerging of German idealism and Lacanian theory, we both are against any kind of crude, reductive conflation of the category of the subject with the register of the merely natural and corporeal, as is Malibu also. Nonetheless, I would contend, and on my reading, so too with the more consistently material side of Zizek I appeal to in this debate, I would contend that a fully rational and atheistic materialism requires a satisfactory account of how, to put it in Hegelese, subject surfaces out of substance alone. This account would identify what the material possibility conditions are within the physical being of quote-unquote nature for the internal production out of itself of structures and phenomena with which subjects are inextricably intertwined, structures and phenomena that eventually achieve, through naturally catalyzed processes of denaturalization, a type of transcendence and imminence as a self-relating dynamic in which non-natural causalities come to function within natural material milieus. Hence, for me, the emergence and self-founding of the subject indeed marks a quote-unquote break with nature. Whether this break is radical depends on what Zizek means by this adjective. Given my insistence that the negativity of non-natural subjectivity remains susceptible to being buffeted and perturbed, or, as Malibu's ontology of traumatic accidents has it, disrupted or destroyed, by the natural ground uh, from which it originally arises and with which it ruptures, perhaps my conception of the break of denaturalization isn't radical enough in Zizek's eyes. However, too radical a rendering of this break between the natural and the non-natural, a rendering wherein the subject accomplishes an absolutely total and final subtraction from biomaterial being, and thereby closes in upon itself at the apex of a perfectly completed movement of denaturalization, would be unacceptable in light of Zizek's commitment to psychoanalysis. So too would be his non-genetic picture of autonomous subjectivity set against the ontogenetic models of subject formation ineliminable from Freudian Lacanian metapsychology. This is because he wishes to capture as essential to his picture of subjectivity the sorts of dysfunctionality so familiar in analysis. Not only is there now ample empirical scientific evidence that many uniquely human dysfunctions, even though their modes of being psychically subjectified, are anything but prescribed beforehand by exclusively biological variables, have their sources in the suboptimal, evolutionarily slapped-together anatomy of the less-than-completely-coordinated central nervous system, 
that is what is nowadays described in certain circles as the quote-unquote kludge-like brain. From the vantage point of strictly theoretical musings, it seems probable that an excessively radical break with nature, quacorporeal substances, would yield a subject much too smoothly functional for Zizekian psychoanalytic sensibilities. An insistence on denaturalization as not too radical, as uneven, partial, incomplete, failed, etc., is more likely to be conducive to the construction of a solidly materialist theory of the subject incorporating characteristics of psychical subjectivity at the center of the psychoanalytic depiction of the, for lack of a better phrase, quote-unquote human condition. Zizek's ensuing employments of Kant's anthropology from a pragmatic point of view and Hegel's The Philosophy of History and his criticisms are quite revelatory in relation to the issues presently at stake. As regards Kant... Zizek redeploys his interpretation of a note to section 82 in book 3, The Faculty of Desire, of the anthropology, a note wherein infants are said to display an innate passion, Leidenschaft, for freedom. Diagnosing what is allegedly missing from what he describes as my, quote, vision of the archaic natural substance which is gradually but never completely civilized, mediated by the symbolic order, end quote, he proceeds with reference to the pre-critical Kant to state, quote, We find the first indication of this third dimension, neither nature nor culture, already in Kant, for whom discipline and education do not directly work on our animal nature, forging it into human individuality. As Kant points out, animals cannot be properly educated since their behavior is already predestined by their instincts. What this means is that paradoxically, in order to be educated into freedom, qua moral autonomy and self-responsibility, I already have to be free in a much more radical, noumenal, monstrous even sense. The Freudian name for this monstrous freedom, of course, is death drive. It is interesting to note how philosophical narratives of the birth of man are always compelled to presuppose a moment in human prehistory when what will become man is no longer a mere animal and simultaneously not yet a being of language, bound by symbolic law a moment of thoroughly perverted, denaturalized, derailed nature which is not yet culture. In his anthropological writings, Kant emphasized that the human animal needs disciplinary pressure in order to tame an uncanny unruliness which seems to be inherent to human nature, a wild, unconstrained propensity to insist stubbornly on one's own will, cost what it may. It is on account of this unruliness that the human animal needs a master to discipline him, Discipline targets this unruliness, not the animal nature in man, end quote. This paragraph appears verbatim in Zizek's contemporaneous essay, Discipline Between Two Freedoms, Madness and Habit in German Idealism, followed by some further specifications regarding Kantian discipline. Subsequently, in his sequel essay in the same volume, a piece entitled Fichte's Laughter, Zizek speaks of Hegel as having, quote, no need for a third element, end quote. And yet, this ardently self-professed Hegelian materialist seems to reach for what he himself, appealing to the authority of Kant the idealist, labels a quote-unquote third dimension. At this moment, one wonders whether, in the shadows, there might be a very un argument akin to Italian then-Marxist Lucio Coletti's contention that Marxism is led away from its materialism by relying on the dialectics of Hegelian idealism 
instead of the purportedly materialist rational kernel of the non-metaphysical anti-dogmatism in the critical transcendental idealism, much maligned by ostensibly misguided Marxists, from Engels onward, preferring Hegel to Kant. My initial response to the Zizek of the passage quoted immediately above is simple. Put in the form of a naive question, from where does this enigmatic, neither natural nor cultural third stratum come? Even if, sticking with Kant's example of babies, one quite contentiously insists that this untamed excess of impassioned autonomy is, at the ontogenetic level of individual subject formation, something intrinsic and hardwired that merely pushes the question back to the phylogenetic level without answering it. One is left to wonder what the cause or origin is for this magical kernel of free negativity, this mysterious flame. From whence does Zizek's noumenal monstrosity arise, if not nature as an inconsistent, otherless physical universe? God, soul, raised cogitans, the absolute self-positing I, the hazy vapors of a ghostly geist? I'd rather my materialism fall flat than be three-dimensional in this non-materialist manner. This materialism, which is as much that of another Zizek as it is mine, rests solely on the two dimensions of a barred real, that is, what I've taken to naming a quote-unquote weak nature, having nothing whatsoever to do with coincidental postmodern bandings of this adjective, a weak nature as internally divided and self-sundering material substance, and an equally barred symbolic, that is, the Lacanian, Zizekian, inconsistent others of culture and related structures. Anything more than these two dimensions, any third, is a derivative emergent byproduct of the natural and or cultural, and not an inexplicable given always already there. To put my cards on the table in terms of making explicit my philosophically ground zero axioms, decisions, and intuitions, I'm enough of a naturalist. Mine is a non-reductive naturalism of an auto-denaturalizing nature, hence really neither a strict naturalism nor anti-naturalism. I'm enough of a naturalist to wager that an avoidance or refusal of an explanation for the natural material genesis of non-natural more than material beings and happenings is, as the Lenin of materialism and, crit and imperial criticism would warn, a dangerous concession cracking open the door to the irrationalities of obscurantist idealisms, spiritualisms, and theisms. In a pre-publication draft version of his debate with the backward-looking theologian John Milbank in The Monstrosity of Christ, Zizek declares that, quote, the theological turn of post-modernity is one of the figures of the enemy for me, end quote. If so, he should be warier of the ways in which he encourages, however unintentionally, attempts to appropriate his work by fanatical advocates of a terribly traditional religiosity deludedly romanticizing the wretched darkness of medieval pre-modernity, regardless of this profound conservatism being trendily repackaged in the flashy guises of radical orthodoxy or any variant of post-secularism in continental philosophical circles, including an oxymoron oxymoronic theological materialism. Thank you, Peter. A few additional remarks warrant formulating before inquiring into the justness and accuracy of Zizek's reading of the Kant of the Anthropology. In the wake of mobilizing the Hegel of the philosophy of history, portrayed as agreeing with the Kantian insistence on freedom as something in nature more than nature itself, to paraphrase Lacan, Zizek cites some reflections by Jonathan Lear on sexuality as situated between animal naturalness and human non-naturalness. 
elsewhere, he likewise expresses approval of Lear's recasting of the Freudian death drive. This recasting proposes that the Freudian word todestrieb, although naming a hypostatization mistakenly performed by Freud himself, is a concept term not for a positive thing, but for the negativity of the pleasure principle's disruptive malfunctioning, its constitutive inability always and invariably to assert its intrapsychical hegemonic dominance. That is to say, according to Lear and the Zizek who sides with him, there is only the dysfunctional pleasure principle and nothing more. In other words, there isn't a second, deeper counter-principle externally opposing this lone principle. Once again enacting the gesture of playing off one Zizek against another, I am inclined to pit the Zizek who endorses Lear's thesis apropos the death drive against the Zizek who appears precisely to succumb to the temptation of hypostatization for which Lear rebukes Freud, namely, treating the todestrieb as a substantial third dimension that's perplexingly neither natural nor cultural. By contrast, for both me and the Zizek who appropriates the Lyrian death drive, there actually exists nothing more than the two dimensions of nature and culture plus the insubstantial negativity, that is not a positive third thing, the insubstantial negativity of the conflicts within and between, but still imminent to these two dimensions. What's more, in Schellingian language agreeable to us, I would add that for a materialism not without its carefully qualified quasi-naturalism, the Urgrund is also an Ungrund of a weak nature, exemplified in this context by Lear's suboptimal pleasure principle minus the other of a more profound underlying meta-law, such as the hypostatized version of the Todestrieb. The Ur as Ungrund of a weak nature is the ultimate baseless base of autonomous subjectivity, whether ontogenetically and or phylogenetically. Lumping together allusions to the eclectic set of Paul Churchland, Douglas Hofstetter, and Badiou, this non-reductive materialism is a self-eliminative one in the sense of natural materiality as auto-negating qua canceling of its own dictates. A self-eliminative materialism in which the eye is a strange loop or loophole ensconced within a nature from which has been subtracted this nature's fantasized strength, that is, its hallucinated deterministic rule as an inescapable, all-powerful tyrant. Through this approach, the eye of autonomous subjectivity isn't added to nature as some sort of supplementary supernature, but arrived at instead through withdrawing things traditionally misattributed to nature. What about anthropology from a pragmatic point of view? The least one can state is that the letter of Kant's text is ambiguous enough to render Zizek's presentation of it in his response to me contestable, although admittedly defensible. On the one hand, Kant overtly claims that the passions for freedom and sex are innate, natürlichen, rather than acquired, erwobenen, innate to human nature. This detail goes against the grain of Zizek's reading, in that the Leidenschaft für Freiheit is counted amongst those features which humans are endowed with by nature, instead of this being bequeathed to them by a neither natural nor cultural, I am tempted uncharitably to employ the adjective supernatural, X. On the other hand, two additional details testify in favor of the interpretation upon which Zizek relies. One, in the footnote referring to the example of infants, Kant describes this always already present sense of autonomy as, quote, 
a vague idea or an analogous representation, end quote. In Kant's philosophical universe, of course, an innate idee or Vorstellung suggests something different from a naturally instinctual animal impulse. An innate idea or representation that, quote, evolves together with the animal nature, end quote, as developmentally parallel yet distinct from this nature. Two, in a move Zizek mirrors in his above-mentioned reference to Lear on sexuality, Kant goes on to stipulate that human passion, including those innate ones for freedom and sex, cannot be conflated with rudimentary animal inclination. As does Lear regarding sexuality, and Fichte regarding the Nadai for that matter, Kant deploys an argument whose basic logic is that whatever is disidentified with as other than the same or the self, passion is apparently animalistic inclination, or Fichte is non-me and Lear's seemingly natural sexuality, whatever is disidentified with as other than the same or the self can manifest itself as such only in and through its mediated constitution within the framework of scaffolding established by the same or the self. Understanding and reason, or the Fichtean eye and the Lyrian denaturalized, peculiarly human psyche. In short, the other than human can be what it is, not as an an sich, but solely thanks to being a correlate of already there humanity. Without pushing the anthropology itself on the tensions internal to its proclamations, suffice it for now to say that while the facets of it amenable to the Zizek replying to me aren't problematic for an idealist like Kant or Fichte, they ought to be deeply troubling for a materialist. When Zizek qualifies the death drive as quote-unquote metaphysical, maybe he should be taken more literally than he might mean to be. Curiously, in his subsequent recourse to Hegel's The Philosophy of History, Zizek winds up, despite his adamant recurrent self-identifications as a dyed-in-the-wool Hegelian, wielding the earlier-glossed Kantian, Fichtean, Lyrian logic to counter both Hegel and me. Coletti again comes to mind at this juncture. In the beginning of Zizek's turn to Hegel here, it sounds as though he has this post-Kantian German idealist merely reiterating what he imputes to Kant, apropos their ostensibly being, something more than natural, inherent, and internal to human nature itself. Specifically, the zero-level void of a monstrous, perverse excess of inflamed free will operative from the get-go. However, three Hegel scholars whose work Zizek greatly admires, these three are Gerard Lebrun, Malibu, and Robert Pippin, all three would take issue with attributing to Hegel a Kantian-style anti-naturalism according to which an underived supernatural surplus originally dwells within nature as an inherent potential transcendentally responsible for the effective existence of an utterly non-natural autonomous subject. What's more, even within the passages from the introduction to the philosophy of history Zizek cites, Hegel is unambiguous in his racist references to African quote-unquote savages. They are spoken of as quote, natural man in his completely wild and untamed state, end quote, as hopelessly submerged in the violent stasis of a prehistorical, quote-unquote, natural condition. Hence, they aren't depicted by Hegel in quite the same guise as Zizek's Kant of the Anthropology characterizes human babies. Moreover, Hegel would be loath to allow for insinuations risking an equivocation between this sort of state of nature and freedom proper. But something very interesting comes to light if one provisionally entertains Zizek's reading of Hegel's The Philosophy of History 
in conjunction with particular statements to be found within the pages of this text introduction. Therein, Hegel remarks that, quote, spirit is at war with itself, end quote. For the version of psychoanalytically influenced Zizekian materialism I defend in many other places and defend on this occasion against what I perceive as momentary non-materialist deviations on the part of Zizek himself, nature too, that is the not all material universe of physical beings, could be described as, quote unquote, at war with itself. As Alenka Zupancic observes, quote, a crucial lesson of materialism refers to the inconsistencies and contradictions of matter itself, end quote. Prior to this observation, she notes in her study of comedy that, quote, comedy's frequent reduction of man to his nature makes a further comic point about nature itself. Nature is far from being as natural as we might think, but is itself driven by countless contradictions and discrepancies, end quote. Her point is pertinent in this setting, too, and she elegantly articulates an idea shared by her, me, Zizek, Lear, and, for instance, on occasion, the cognitivist philosopher of mine, Thomas Metzinger. All five of us generally agree that naturalizing human beings entails a reciprocal denaturalization of natural being, and this because the effort to render the strangeness of subjectivity imminent to nature forces a radical recasting of fundamental proto-theoretical images and ideas of nature itself. So, in blending Hegel's ethnocentric comments about the undomesticated volatility of natural qua ahistorical Africa with Zizek's loose appropriation of Hegelian nature as per the philosophy of history, one arrives at the following synthesis. Nature itself, read in tooth and claw, is an anarchic battlefield lacking harmony, stability, wholeness, and so on. In other words, it's anything but a cosmic unity of synchronized spheres placidly coexisting with one another. For a dialectical tradition running from Hegel through Marx, Freud, Mao, and up to Zizek, conflictual heterogeneity instead of peaceful homogeneity is to be discovered even within the most basic substrates of material being. Hegel himself voices some fascinatingly suggestive pronouncements about nature in the philosophy of history. In its introduction, he asserts, quote, mere nature is too weak to keep its genre and species pure when conflicting with alien elementary influences, end quote. He later goes on to say, in the paragraph opening the treatment of the geographical basis of history, that, quote, nature should not be rated too high nor too low. Awakening consciousness takes its rise, surrounded by natural influences alone, nur in de nature, and every development of it is the reflection of spirit back upon itself in opposition to the immediate, unreflected character of mere nature. Nature is therefore one element in this antithetic abstracting process. Nature is the first standpoint from which man can gain freedom within himself, and this liberation must not be rendered difficult by natural obstructions. Nature is contrasted with spirit as a quantitative mass, whose power must not be so great as to make its single force omnipotent, end quote. Without the time to do anything close to exegetical justice to Hegel's philosophy, these lines are quoted here in order to claim Hegel as a precursor of my Zizek-inspired materialism of a weak nature. Likewise, the Zizek with whom I don't disagree 
can be seen characteristically wearing a Hegelian badge with fierce pride at various moments in his contemporary writings, such as when he states, quote, Spirit is part of nature and can occur or arise only through a monstrous self-affliction, distortion, derangement of nature, end quote. End quote. What is spirit at its most elementary? The wound of nature, end quote. As both Pippin and Zizek justly maintain, Hegelian spirit isn't a substantial, noun-like thing akin to the Cartesian race Cogitans as a positivized being, entity, or object. Rather, Geist is a kinetic verb-like process. Moreover, this non-substantial dynamism of negativity as a movement of denaturalization giving rise to complex subject beings whose complexity escapes and disrupts control by the laws and mechanisms of natural materialities is entirely imminent to nature itself, with the latter thus being envisioned in Hegelian philosophy as an internally self-sundering substance set against against itself, Zelpsich entgegen. What Hegel terms the impotence or weakness of the natural provides as a contingent material condition of possibility the cracks and fissures of elbow room for the imminent transcendence of nature by spirit, qua more than material autonomous subjectivity, still embedded in but not governed by its physical grounds. And even if, measured against the standards of post-Baconian scientific method, Hegel was presciently right for the wrong speculative reasons, he was nevertheless right. To take just one set of cutting-edge scientific subdomains among others, non-reductive versions of evolutionary psychology and meme theory, put forward by such thinkers as Richard Dawkins in his earlier better days, Susan Blackmore, Daniel Dennett, and Keith Stanovich, share in common an unconscious Hegelianism in the form of an underlying dialectical thesis to the effect that, to lean on Stanovich's language in particular, humans are nature-created Frankensteins who can and do rebel against their creator, a creator without sufficient power either to forestall this rebellion in advance or quash it after its outburst so as to rein these disobedient offspring back under the yoke of defied old authority. The sciences themselves are beginning to show that such incarnations of the notion of nature as evolution and genes are, as Hegel would put it, too weak, too powerless to dictate the course of lives with an unwavering iron fist. Human subjects are living proof that this imagined omnipotent big other, this idol of an outdated, bankrupt, and scientifically falsified scientism has in fact clay feet. In the closing sentences of his reply to my piece, The Misfeeling of What Happens, Zizek, after the above-mentioned invocation of Lear on sexuality, corrects both Hegel and me. He contends, quote, From the Freudian standpoint, Hegel has to be immediately criticized here. I'm sorry, imminently criticized. That was a slip on my part. It is not just, interpret it as you will, it is not just that sexuality is the animal substance, which is then sublated into civilized modes and rituals, gentrified, disciplined, etc. The excess itself of sexuality, which threatens to explode the civilized constraint, sexuality as unconditioned passion, is the result of culture. In this way, the civilization slash culture retroactively posits or transforms its own natural presuppositions. Culture retroactively denaturalizes nature itself, and this is what Freud called the id, libido. So back to Johnston, this retroactive excess of denaturalized nature is missing in the image he proposes of a gradual cultural mediation of nature, end quote. 
I'm not necessarily committed to a gradualist perspective as regards emergent denaturalization. If anything, I'm more inclined in the direction of a punctuated equilibrium model as per Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould. As Ledoux hints, evolution does not exclude revolution. Anyhow, that aside, with reference to the third session of Lacan's fourth seminar, a session entitled by Jacqueline Miller, The Signifier and the Holy Spirit, Zizek articulates this same line of thought in a separate text. Quote, The Holy Ghost stands for the symbolic order as that which cancels or rather suspends the entire domain of life. Lived experience, the libidinal flux, the wealth of emotions, or to put it in Kant's terms, the pathological. When we locate ourselves within the Holy Ghost, we are transubstantiated, we enter another life beyond the biological one, end quote. Zizek's recourse to blatantly religious language in this specific vein, including Kant's thinly sublimated, barely secularized version of such language, arguably is no accident or coincidence. Another of the intuitions informing my overall position can be conveyed as the thesis that, especially on the terrain of ideology, the enlightenment tension between the materialism of or shaped by science and the idealism of religion as theology, spiritualism, etc., continues to face us as a point in Badiou's precise sense as per logics of worlds. That is to say, considered side by side, the Weltanschauungen of scientificity and religiosity contain, in however concealed or obfuscated a state, a fundamental and unavoidable either-or choice between mutually exclusive commitments, this assertion being faithfully in line with Engels, Lenin, and Freud, among others. In my view, the Zizek who conjures up an occult X to account for their being free subjects, and in so doing, who relies upon a still Christian Kant more than anyone else, is forced to embrace flagrantly theological terminology. By contrast, I insist in fidelity to another systematically materialist Zizek that no such mysterious third can and should be posited. This sort of third is ideologically risky in addition to being theoretically gratuitous. Going a step further, I would even venture to propose that, echoing Churchill's overused one-liner, psychoanalysis and the physical sciences are the worst bases for philosophical materialism and leftist ideology critique, except for all those others tried from time to time. Before concluding this intervention, I have three brief responses to Zizek's critique of Hegel and me. Relatively brief. First, it's unclear to me whether his non-Hegelian and purportedly Freudian, Freud's engagements with biology render this appeal to authority dubitable. It's unclear to me whether his non-Hegelian and purportedly Freudian conception of the, quote, cultural mediation of nature, end quote, is epistemological, ontological, or both. I suspect that, given his general philosophical leanings, as well as recent textual evidence, Zizek intends to claim that the retroactive denaturalization of nature is ontological, namely an après-coup transubstantiation that, as it were, goes all the way down, permeating and saturating nature through and through. If Zizek's intention is indeed to posit a real cultural symbolic mediation of nature in which the latter, in its material actuality, is thoroughly and exhaustively digested by the former, then this leads into my second response to him. Circumnavigating back to a query asked at the outset of this presentation, Zizek's indictments of me within the parameters of a discussion in which the rapport between philosophical materialism and the physical sciences is under dispute 
raised the issue of whether or not the theoretical ought to be constrained methodologically by the empirical. Zizek speaks as though all of the above could be adjudicated without leaving the philosopher's armchair. And here, perhaps, I appear to Graham to have a leather jacket and uh, a switchblade out, but uh, I, I didn't anticipate that this, uh, this uh, particular turn of phrase would come up in his presentation. But wording my objection to this in a Hegelian style, the history of philosophy in its development in tandem with other disciplines and practices bears witness to a dynamic within which the mobile line of division between the empirical and the theoretical is a distinction internal to the empirical itself. Put differently, problems previously able to be posed only at the level of the philosophical or theoretical often come to be grasped in time as properly posed at the level of the scientific or empirical. As already stated in the misfeeling of what happens, I am convinced that the question of whether or not denaturalization, so to speak, hits rock bottom without remainder, is, for a materialism not without its naturalism, both a genuine question, as well as one that can and should admit empirical adjudication as an indispensable ingredient in the process of its attempted resolution. My third response to Zizek is that the Kantian Fichtian logic informing his replies to me brings him into proximity with a type of anti-naturalist idealism he himself has been appropriately careful to avoid in other instances. As he stipulates in 1993's Tearing with the Negative, one of his very best philosophical works, quote, simply because the opposition between nature and culture is always already culturally overdetermined, that is, that no particular element can be isolated as pure nature, does not mean that everything is culture. Nature qua real remains the unfathomable X which resists cultural gentrification, end quote. Although I have reservations with respect to the supposed unfathomability of this X, I enthusiastically endorse the rest of the content of this quotation and want to remind Zizek of it. I would tack on that, as hypothesized in the misfeeling of what happens, it's less problematic and more plausible for the kind of materialist ontology I think is most valid and legitimate to speculate that the real genesis of autonomous subjectivity, of the palettre, splits the material ground of its being into both the first real of a nature undigested by cultural mediation and the second real of a nature mediated by culture, the second real being exemplified by the notions of nature and sexuality Zizek employs as examples against me. Zizek's own subtle and detailed delineations of the Lacanian register of the real encourage such a move to be made. In short, I refuse what I see as a false dichotomy, a specious forced choice, as in psychoanalytic interpretation, as linked to the crucial analytic concept of overdetermination, when one is faced with the choice between this or that, the right answer, an answer refusing one of the key premises of the question itself, frequently is yes, please. That is, it's not one or the other, but both. The Zizek with whom I feel the deepest solidarity is alive and well today. Quite recently, he proclaims, quote, to be an actual naturalist is not to subscribe to necessary fiction, but to really believe in materialism. It is not enough to insist that Kant and Hegel have to teach us something about the realm of normativity which takes place in the wider domain of the realm of nature. It is, on the contrary, important to reappropriate German idealism to a fuller extent. If discourse, representation, mind, or thought in general cannot consistently be opposed to the substantial real which is supposed to be given beforehand, independent of the existence of concept-mongering creatures, then we have to bite the bullet of idealism, 
We need a concept of the world or the real which is capable of accounting for the replication of reality within itself, end quote. In resonance with these remarks of Zizek's, the transcendental materialism of a weak nature I advocate, itself profoundly marked by his interlinked ontology and theory of the subject, gestures at a vision of nature as itself monstrous, as self-distorting, insofar as explaining the emergence out of nature of humans, qua deranged monsters rebelling against nature, requires a much weirder picture of nature than standard traditional species of naturalism usually offer. This vision has no need, nor does Zizek despite his reaction to me, for imagining the presence of a supernatural excess or surplus as a neither natural nor cultural third power, miraculously sparking the ex nihilo eruption of peculiarly human subjectivities running amok down paths of denaturalization. Self-sundering material, natural material substance is auto-disruptive enough to account for these explosions of unrest, of the restlessness of negativity. Not only do I wholeheartedly second Zizek's cry to, quote-unquote, repeat Lenin, for theoretical in addition to political materialism, I think the moment is ripe to call for repeating Engels, as well as the Mao of Uncontradiction. Contra Lukács' still prevailing condemnatory verdict on any dialectics of nature, one quite convincingly could maintain that the main flaw of Engels' efforts to conquer the territories of the sciences and claim them on behalf of Marxist materialism is that these efforts were ahead of their time, that the sciences of his era weren't yet ready to receive these aggressive overtures. But, starting with such mid-20th century scientific breakthroughs as Donald O'Hebb's research on the psychophysiological mechanisms of learning, the biological sciences have managed to weaken empirically their image of human nature in the precise sense of natural weakness specified previously. Through this self-induced weakening, Empirical experimental studies of the living material foundations of humanity have given us, in forms like neuroplasticity and epigenetics, the wiggle room we need and want for a materialist ontology of freedom, such as that desired by Zizek. These scientists are falling into our own hands through the cunning of their own reason. Coletti identifies the Italian Renaissance thinker Giovanni Pico della Mirandola as an ancestral precursor of Marx, in terms of the foundations of the latter's idea of human beings as generic, that is, as natureless by nature, born faceless and taking on plastic visages via the labor-mediated, historicizing subject-object dialectic. Agamben, in the open, also refers to Pico della Mirandola, similarly recognizing the radicality of this Renaissance author's humanism as a humanism of anonymous humanity akin to what Zizek detects in Descartes' Cogito, a humanism announced in his 1486 oration on the dignity of man. In relation to Sartre, Badiou, despite what he owes to Althusser and structuralism, recognizes in a Sartrean humanism, resonating with Coletti's Renaissance-indebted Marx, a radicalism allowing it to converge with such an opposite as the anti-humanism of Foucault. In the 19th century, aspects of German Romanticism, Marxism, specifically Marx's analyses of industrial mechanization, and existentialism herald subsequent critiques of post-Galilean scientificity as limited, nihilistic, and vulgar, vis-a-vis -vis the multifaceted richness of lived human experience. By the 20th century, the majority of continental philosophers, with such odd bedfellows as Husserl, Lukács, Heidegger, Sartre, and Adorno to the fore, become suspicious of, if not utterly hostile to, the empirical experimental sciences of modernity. 
both mathematized science generally and the life sciences specifically come to be viewed as lamentably reductive and objectifying. From this perspective, a perspective shared by a number of figures on both the right and left sides of the political spectrum, these disciplines are seen as incorrigibly complicit with a range of afflictions plaguing modern societies and their inhabitants. In defiance of European philosophy's long-standing, deeply entrenched aversion to the quote-unquote hard sciences, perceived as diametrically opposed, inassimilable adversaries, the hour has arrived for philosophical materialism to storm the gates of these sciences. Whether the scientists themselves are aware of it or not, their fields have been primed by them to receive the inscription of a portrait of human subjectivity whose first glimmerings already are to be glimpsed in a 15th century ode inaugurating Renaissance humanism. The life sciences are no longer the enemy of the dignity Pico della Mirandola lyrically and lavishly praises. However, wittingly or unwittingly, they have become its ally, the very ground for a scientifically informed materialism incorporating the radical humanism, maybe even superhumanism, of something like Sartrean style atheist existentialism. Both humanists and materialists have every reason to be unshakably confident the future definitely is ours. Thank you. Very much, Adrian, for that interesting and provocative paper. I'm sure there'll be a couple of questions at least to keep us happy. We've got at least half an hour, so sorry. Uh, yeah. Start with a sort of suggestion question and then a more proper question. Um, with regard to your conception of weak nature, yes. um, it seems to be kind of two ways of thinking about this kind of you know, non fertilizable nature, um, one of which is in terms of a kind of denial or determinism, yes. you probably want to reject. Yes. Um, the other way, which I, I think is what you're going for, is something like a rejection of absolutely any form of theology. A complete, a complete rejection of any sort of well, actually, both. Uh, that, that that at least at the level of now, I should I should indicate here, and this probably will head off a number of, of possible questions that might come up. Um, that if you recall, right at the beginning, I emphasized how with Zizek, for instance, I really think that his uh, ontology is reverse engineered out of his theory of subjectivity. So he has a particular theory of subjectivity, and then asks himself, uh, what sort of ontology is compatible with this that also fits a certain uh, number of other criteria? And of course, this means then that it's not so much, uh, although in Zizek's case this is a bit different, but certainly for myself here, I would want to say that this is perhaps, to use a Heideggerian turn of phrase, more the construction of a regional ontology in relation specifically to human subjectivity. And so in the, at that level, you know, I'm interested both in a denial of uh, you know, determinism in a certain sense and also, of course, would not be comfortable with the notion that there's any kind of underlying teleology of, of nature which makes the emergence of subjectivity some sort of preordained necessity. Yes, absolutely. Okay, um, right. Uh, this leads, sort of leads into the second question, which is at one point you referenced the idea of non-natural causalities. Yes. I'm wondering how you make sense of that notion. How do we understand non-natural causalities? Right. Well... This is, I mean, for instance, since Lacan is one of the shadow figures here who pops up from time to time, um, of course, this would be the question of what in Lacanian psychoanalytic metapsychology is referred to as the issue of psychical causality. And this would be, well, 
at what point, in order for this to be established, at what point do, for instance, uh, images and signifiers, various uh, Vorstellungen that constitute, uh, you might say, the content or the scaffolding of subjectivity conceived of along Lacan's lines. Uh, at what point does there come to be a self-relating uh, relating dynamic between those constituents that is not itself dictated by, you know, is not driven by, for instance, underlying uh, physiological processes which would, uh, which would stipulate that, you know, these particular representational elements have to be concatenated in this fashion and no other, right? Uh, and, of course, I am committed to, in the background here, too, is a sort of, uh, 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 you might say, general sympathy towards emergentist models as uh, useful complements to thinking about what would be involved in terms of some of what would make possible the establishment of this autonomy at the level of the self-relating dynamics of these non-natural mediators of subjectivity in the Lacanian model. Mm-hmm. approaches um, at, specifically at the level of the human we're talking about an emergence of something non-natural mm-hmm. as opposed to talking about the emergence of a non-natural from the chemical to the biological or from mm-hmm. the, the quantum mechanical to mm-hmm. the, the molecular or whatever. Yes. What, you know, emergence happens all over the place as, as right. far as you know, right. science is concerned. So what's specific about the emergence of a, a non-natural cause well, I think this is more an empirical than a theoretical question. I mean, uh, just simply from observation, we can tell that there seem to be a lot of peculiarities to the sorts of entities we call human beings that we don't see exhibited at other levels where we might posit uh, the, the genesis of emergent properties. Um, and so I think that, you know, in this case, I could simply answer this by saying there's plenty of, uh, you know, direct evidence from the most mundane of concrete experience, which would seem to support that there's some peculiarity here to the specific sort of, you know, emergent properties that we're talking about when we're speaking of beings of this degree degree of complexity uh, that we call subjects, for instance, in, uh, uh, you know, say, in Lacan's sense, among others. Yeah. James? I'm interested in your ethical use of dignity, uh, and I wanted to defend uh, what I think is an alternative view of dignity, which would also perhaps uh, defend Zizek's um, X, okay. kind of fathomable X. Now, you can have a conception of dignity that's generic, based on some kind of general conception can be dialectical. But it strikes me that uh, many of the uses of dignity today, dying with dignity, for example, are, are a cry for uh, a, um, a right to one's own singularity. And not a singularity with respect to uh, subjective choice, but singularity with respect to one's singularities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All the variations that make us up. Now it strikes me that in order to defend those against the application of our contemporary sciences, uh, there has to be an appeal to something within nature that's singular, based on something like this unfathomable X that Zizek appeals to. So could you defend your use of dignity a bit further as singular? In, in these terms, this is, this is great. Uh, so this question is, is very helpful. Um, one of the things that you're, you're finding, uh, especially when we're talking about, for example, uh, neuroscientific <coughs> approaches, um, one of the things that you're finding, and I should say in order to foreshadow the answer that will get right to the heart of your question, that in general part of the strategy I'm pursuing here um, that I hope came through, uh, and perhaps this is not a popular reference to reach for with this crowd, um, but and even with myself, but I thought 
thought of it and thought, well, this is appropriate. Um, there's a way in which what I'm pursuing is something along the lines of, uh, you know, what Derrida conceives deconstruction to do, where it's not a matter of imposing this from the outside, but, you know, deconstruction, in a sense, observes, you know, maybe nudges a bit, but allows for, for instance, in Derrida's case, a text to dismantle itself in a certain way uh, and to create ruptures with itself. And that, in a sense, what I'm proposing is that a similar perspective, uh, looking at, for instance, what's happening in terms of developments in the life sciences specifically, can show how they're moving in the direction of becoming, de you know, auto-deconstructing in this fashion. I mean, it's no accident, I think, that Malibu, uh, coming uh, out of a background, you know, deeply marked by her experience of study under Derrida, you know, was also uh, a, a responsive to, picked up on uh, some of the implications involved, for instance, with the discovery of neuroplasticity, first foreshadowed with Donald Hebb's work in the mid-20th century. Um, so there's, there's this way in which showing that, you know, the sciences, in fact, uh, are leading to a point where they're be able, being able to perform a kind of, or one could raise them to the dignity of their notion by showing how they're, in a sense, performing the sort of Gerdelian-style incomplete uh, decompletion of themselves, where they show how you know, we can now indicate where we're forced to move beyond or point to something which would require supplementation by a different explanatory strategy or discourse that's not scientific in our sense. Right? So, for instance, epigenetics with the recognition that you know, at most 50% of uh, neural wiring is dictated by genetics. The rest is left completely open to uh, mediation by what we could broadly call environmental factors, which we could say would be both phenomenological and structural. Um, that, and what this does, right, is among other things, it absolutely singularizes the, the, the physical being, let alone, of course, when we start talking about those dimensions that can't just be explanatorily reduced to the physical level, right? And so I think that you can have a very non-mystical account of singularity, right, which just uses, again, since we, you mentioned this, you know, this third dimension X, which just uses uh, these two dimensions that I plead for uh, to account for this singularity, right? I think that those are rich enough that you don't need anything over and above them to nonetheless still be able to say that Weirdly, although we tend to think of science as trafficking in universals, it has to, but there's a realization, in the, especially in the biological study of human beings, that there is an irreducible singularity which is actually uh, highlighted by these sciences, but then f explaining that cannot be exhaustively done from within their own explanatory uh, jurisdictional constraints. And so I don't feel that it's necessary to reach for anything more to, uh, to at least have a sense of dignity as the kind of singularity which, uh, you, know, which you, you would want to see as part of that account of dignity, certainly. Yeah, but also I should say, you know, Graham and the kind of concerns that he has, which I hope this is okay, but, you know, like Brassier's embrace of the churchlands or that kind of approach to uh, materialism. I mean, Brassier and I are both very sympathetic to the sciences, but in my view, um, not only are there theoretical problems with a paradigm like eliminative materialism, which of course suits his nihilistic tastes, where these whole concerns about dignity, et cetera, that of course drove a lot of anti-scientism in 20th century continental Europe, uh, you know, it's just a matter of, all right, we need to get over those hang-ups and just say that instead of nihilism being a disaster, it's the greatest accomplishment of post-enlightenment reason in its historical development. In my view, not only are the churchlands theoretically problematic for anyone who keeps up with analytic philosophy of mind, uh, they'll realize they represent a, an outdated minority <coughs> position at this point that's considered implausible by most of the, I think, uh, you know, best, uh, you know, figures working in the field today, but also I think empirically uh, they are no longer really standing on firm ground. That The image that they have of the brain, for 
instance, is based on neuroscience from several decades ago um, and really doesn't do a good job of capturing the more dialectical dynamics of a neuroscience that really, in my view, has become almost spontaneously dialectical materialist without knowing it. Um, and that's also Malibu's thesis. But, well, like Badiou's thesis about mathematicians as unconscious ontologists. I mean, you know, there's certainly a parallel here as well. But anyhow, um, I should let other questions be asked. Uh, Peter's got a question. Does this follow on directly? Okay. Yeah. One of the few people who have read all of Metzinger's book. I wonder how you can how you just said. Now, Metzinger, the interesting move that he makes, and what I would like to do is put him side by side with another analytic philosopher of mine, Colin McGinn, who I actually had a reference to when I used the phrase mysterious flame. Uh, you know, that was a reference to his book of that title. Uh, and what McGinn does is that he argues, uh, he has this epistemological argument, he says, uh, on epistemological grounds, the, the for instance, the mind-body problem that has vexed us for so long is insoluble, um, and that there is this cognitive closure that uh, that we have to operate under the constraints of that makes it such that we'll never be able to uh, uh, you know to uh, get rid of this riddle to solve the enigma, etc. Um, and that uh, what, uh, but of course, it's just an epistemological argument, and so he remains agnostic about you know any of the issues having to do with ontologically speaking, what's the rapport between these uh, two poles. Um, Whereas with Metzinger, he uses the notion of cognitive closure, but he links it up with the Churchland. So you have this idea of you can come up with a, a, a neuroscientific account of the kind of cognitive closure that uh, uh, McGinn is talking about. And on the basis of that, you can then say the Churchlands are right, eliminative materialism is true, but because of the fact that the brain itself generates this cognitive closure, we can never believe it or accept it or you know, really subjectify uh, the position of eliminative materialism, hence the reason why why the churchlands will forever remain unpopular, etc. So it's a neat move or gesture, right? Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, um, I think that, again, with Metzinger, because he ultimately, his ontological commitments come down to the churchland paradigm, um, he has a lot of trouble doing justice to things like epigenetics, neuroplasticity, um, you know, and, and instead, I think another promising development in analytic philosophy of mind has to do with more distributed approaches to, uh, you know, consciousness or subjectivity, such as Alvinoe's book, Out of Our Heads, or Andy Clark's supersizing the mind, um, where there's at least also, I think, some movement in the analytic direction, which I think points much more towards uh, the sorts of models that uh, interface well with you know, the approaches that we have in the continental tradition. And for me, one of the big uh, motivations of doing this too is that analytic philosophers up until recently in terms of their training in the history of philosophy you went up to about Drossen's Kant and then you leapt over most of that horrible bad 19th century that bottomed out in British Hegelianism and you pick up early in the 20th century and of course I think a lot of analytic philosophy of mind debates would be greatly enriched by mobilizing not only a language but a set of concepts that literally allow you to do better justice to for instance cognitive science, neuroscience etc. that they don't have in their grab bag or their toolbox um, and I think there's some promising developments if we are you know, going to use the rich legacy of 19th century up to 20th century continental philosophy to interface with this field and in a way which doesn't just involve saying, oh, well, you know, nihilism is great, let's embrace the church lens and on we go. But anyhow, that's perhaps not fair to Ray, and I've been told that he's been developing his position, so I'll be interested to see how he inflects it. Um, but anyhow, uh, I guess, Peter, you... Uh... Yeah, well, thank, thank you very much again uh, for Levi-Strauss says somewhere about the, you know, we're bound to reduce, quote-unquote, the operations of mind and thought to some more fundamental reality. It'll be simultaneously an expansion of that reality. We'll realize it's much weirder, more complicated. That's great. It goes very much along the lines that you're working on, I think. Do you remember the text where that occurs? No, I'll look around for it. Thank um, you. But my question is, so you introduced a, a number of distinctions, but I, I was struck by the fact 
in a way, like the psychoanalytic distinction drops out, which is the distinction between consciousness and unconsciousness. And that, at what point does that become unnecessary? Because on the face of it, That's, yeah. it's the move, and it's Zizek's basic move, right? But to link Hegel and Freud stroke Lacan is an intriguing one, because in Hegel, yeah. and then also in Sartre, you mentioned later, there is no unconscious, fundamentally. What there is is yeah. thought, or fundamentally there's logic before nature, right? Yeah. And spirit and so on before nature. So nature is kind of weakened spirit as one way of thinking. Yes. So Eurocan says there's nature first, and there are gaps. Nature is not self complete, it's, you know, it's at odds with itself, inconsistent with itself. Through these gaps at a certain point, uh, spirit can start to poke through. Yes. But with Hegel, it's sort of, that is an account of how spirit um, emerges in a certain sense of um, temporal development, but it's yes. not how things work out. Um, fundamentally, right? Being is already thought of as subject rather than merely a substance. And yes. And there from the beginning, right? Yes, I mean, and here, of course, you know, I used the, 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 the rational kernel phrase from Marx in terms of, you know, how he expressed his relationship to, uh, to Hegel. Um, and, and in general, and this actually speaks to something. I remember when I was, uh, one of the things I did in preparation for coming here is that I listened to the recordings of this uh, meeting that took place in Zagreb last summer at which both Peter and Graham were present. Um, and just to get a sense of some of the conversation they'd had, uh, you know, as well as to hear, you know, Graham's thoughts on materialism. Um, and... You know, I remember in, uh, you know, in listening to this, wait, oh gosh, due to the exhaustion, I just all of a sudden had this early senility moment where I completely lost the thread of, oh, all right, I've recovered it. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, my body is very out of whack at this moment. But, uh, um, you know, Graham, you mentioned how, uh, and I understand this, this response, a real skepticism to, uh, you know, moments in Zizek's ontology where he felt, well, you know, even Fichte is, uh, you know, proclaimed to be a materialist. This seems, you know, uh, a bit problematic. And I should say that for both Zizek and I think myself as well, in relating to these figures, it's very much modeled along the lines of Marx's notion of rescuing certain select, you know, plucking these, you know, rational kernels and discarding the mystical shell, even though I think sometimes Zizek tries to say that, you know, the rational kernel is so big that there's very little mystical shell. And, you know, here I might differ from him depending upon what we're talking about with respect to each of these figures. But so, yes, there is, this is a very uh, selective appropriation of these moments in Hegel where they're kind of promising openings that, in my view, foreshadow some of what I want to do. But, of course, yes, um, there would not be a full, uh, you know, uh, commensurability between, you know, Hegelianism proper and what I'm articulating here. So I'd grant that. But then I also want to come to, you mentioned Sartre, right? And one of the things that's interesting for me is that Zizek has yet to produce a sustained engagement with Sartre, despite the fact that one can, one can read him as reactivating on a number of levels, Aspects are involved in Sartre, um, and it's a very curious sort of point of silence in his body of work, I think. And I've even pushed him to uh, to write about it, and we'll see if he does. He mentions him a little bit in the Fichte's Laughter Estate, contained in that volume he did with Marcus Gabriel uh, recently. Um, but uh, one of the things is that in Zizek's reading of the Lacanian Unconscious, so to come back to the starting point of your question in terms of what happens to this distinction, um, I think that Zizek's way of understanding the Lacanian unconscious, uh, you know, is so radically depsychologized um, that he really does consider it to be, you know, a very much a kind of public, out there, uh, you know, uh, you know, walking amongst us, you know, in these, uh, you know, crystallized forms in terms of our comportment that, uh, you know, could be at odds with our, you know, self-identification, um, with the institutions we participate in, etc. So you get a sense of. Um, 
you know, and even to use Hegel, I mean, Zizek's Lacanian unconscious is more like Hegel's objective spirit or Sartre's practico inert, right? Um, and he's really, I think, in general, a partisan of that sort of view of the unconscious. Um, yet at the same time, of course, his focus in a theory of subjectivity is much more classical and even in some ways non-psychoanalytic at moments where he's not even so much interested, I think, in the subject of the unconscious, properly speaking, but rather talking about subjectivity more in a kind of modern sense that would reverberate quite, you know, or Sartre would, for instance, recognize quite readily. That's it, but that's, what's curious is he doesn't feel obliged to really explain the shift. Whereas, so for Lacan, he's very much at the subject of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. The question then of how do we think of the freedom of the subject of the unconscious is a real question. I, yes. Um, by the way, it, Miller, you know, in the beginning of uh, Jacqueline Miller has this little book, um, which I'm sure you've seen, and David de la Vie's beginning in life, or start in life. Yes, yeah, I have. He yeah. says the reason why I could read Lacan and impressed people in 1963, 64, when I got to read Lacan so easily because I'd studied Sartre so carefully. And yes. that, that, I think, is absolutely crucial, that yes. so much of Lacan comes straight out of Sartre. It's just a reworking. But yes. again, with that intriguing shift that you go from an account of consciousness, yes. which is, is freedom, yes. to an account of the unconscious, yes. where the question of freedom is much more complicated. And simply to import Hegel in, yeah. against the philosophy of absolutely of freedom, yeah. seems to leave the question hanging. So my question to you is, how do we think of the freedom of the unconscious? Well, he, and here's where I would want to remind all of us about something that Lacan never tired of repeating uh, in his teaching, which is that primarily my discourse is aimed at analysts or analysts in training. That this, and he, you know, he, you know, constantly uses the phrase "our experience," and of course, what he's referring to there is clinical psychoanalytic experience. Um, and you know, for me, and you know, even with my own experience of analysis and going through it, uh, this, uh, you know, my thoughts about the relationship between freedom and the unconscious, uh, there were moments in Lacan that became very clear to me along these lines having gone through it. And so I do think that there is, his account is much more closely indexed to uh, the, the, the clinic. Whereas, I mean, Zizek, I think he's quite right to look at what happens outside the four walls of the consulting room. But, you know, yeah. And with, for instance, you know, one of the one of the aspects of it, the experience of a proper analysis, I mean, in the kind of caricatured, inaccurate view that people have of analysis, and that often is part of what's involved in the demand for analysis with patients presenting themselves, is that analysis is viewed as a discourse of determinism, where the process will allow the patient to finally make peace with things having to be as they are. And so it's, I'm feeling discontent in my current existence, but uh, would you, the analyst, you know, help me understand that it has to be this way based upon my bad childhood based upon these various traumas, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, And of course, um, analysis, and here to capture this, I would paraphrase a one-liner that Freud uses in The Ego and the Id when talking about the superego, where he says, and you're familiar with this, actually, you've heard me use this before, I think, um, but where uh, Freud proclaims that, apropos the superego, the normal man is not only uh, far more immoral than he uh, believes, he is also far more moral than he knows, right? So the superego involves this contradiction where, or apparent contradiction, this paradox of sorts, where on the one hand, insofar as parts of it are unconscious, right, that we have this code of morality, these ethical you know, principles, which we're not even aware of holding ourselves responsible to, that then can generate what is consciously experienced as free-floating irrational guilt, right? But of course, at the same time at the unconscious level, you also have, uh, you know, these murderous or, you know, lustful, incestuous impulses, etc., which are at odds with that. So both are there at the same time. And I would want to say the same thing apropos the freedom-determinism balance in psychoanalysis and the clinical experience, that for uh, for a, a proper analysis, one becomes aware that one is simultaneously more determined and more free than one knows, right? So on the one hand, yes, there's the standard uncovering of all of the complex uh, historical 
historical representational machinery that uh, plays a kind of determining role, pulling your strings as a puppet dancing on the end of these. But at the same time, what you realize, what an analysis does also is show you how this construction is arbitrary and there's nothing necessitating it. There's no deeper uh, you know, narrative of any sort, life historical, scientific, etc., which makes it such that you have to live in the neurotic cage that you, without being aware of it, uh, have been complicit in helping to construct and has your fingerprints all over it. Uh, and so you also are led to this horrifying moment, which for some patients is when they break off analysis and get scared, which is where they'd rather be told that they have to settle for the devil they know than to realize the arbitrary contingent nature of that devil and the fact that you know, as with Sartre, right, the confronting this, the horror of one's freedom as involving the notion that at any moment there's nothing which binds you to go on living the way that you do, right? And it's a horrible, it's not a wonderful, joyous gift, oh, freedom is to be treasured with pleasure. It's this oppressive, weighty burden, right? Where, And similarly, there are patients who have to be led to that, to confront that groundless ground that means that, no, your neurosis is not at all some sort of outgrowth of a deeper underlying necessity that undergirds it. And you could upend the apple cart like that, but of course that step is a, a, can be a frightening one, um, and that's a moment that for Lacan in that space, that's a, a moment of really where it's not just a, the, that kind of subjectivity beyond the ego doesn't just remain unconscious, but does at least for a moment really come to light in a very explicit uh, fashion that can be painful and that you can be palpably aware of. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so I have a, uh, first of all, I see what um, your, your uh, debate was usually revolves around reducing the three axes uh, to two axes. Yes. Uh, those, those two acceptable materialist axes, as I understand them, are, are nature and uh, culture. Uh, culture. Loosely speaking, yes. I mean, it's a handy opposition to use, although other terms could be chosen that perhaps might be better. Yeah, okay. Um, so my question is, why should we be satisfied with two axes rather than trying to reduce uh, um, uh, culture to nature, right? That move of Antiedipus, for example. Oh, oh, but... Well, uh, uh, why, why should materialism be satisfied with dualism? Oh, well, uh, this, this is great. Okay. Why should we be interested in <clears throat> eliminating unnecessary uh, explanatory principles given already the weakness of nature that you're advocating? It's like a, a messy, inelegant uh, 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 structure of explanation would be just as uh, acceptable as a completely uh, elegant yeah, I mean, I must admit, I do have a certain, and this is almost a matter of sort of proto-philosophical, you know, a, a taste. You know, I sometimes do like uh, reaching for Occam's razor. Not always, but sometimes. Uh, but, no, but uh, to come back to the first question, this is very good. And, in fact, uh, on a larger level, Right? I would be committed to an account that would allow for one, and as is being attempted in, in uh, several disciplines, particularly in the life sciences, to account on the longer haul for the emergence of nature out of culture. Right? So it's not as though um, I'm not a dualist in that sense. I mean, in this sense, uh, I think it would be more accurate to define my position ultimately both, uh, well, at least here on this longer term sort of macro level phylogenetic scale um, as a kind of uh, you know, emergent dualism rather than a sort of a priori dualism. 
metabolism, right? So, you know, given this genetic dimension, not in the sense of genes, but in the sense of, you know, temporally elongated, um, that, yes, ultimately I think that a plausible account would have to involve being able to even show how the rudiments of culture emerge. And I mentioned meme theory as a field, which this is, you know, one domain in which you see an attempt to, it's funny, you know, to work out certain issues that we recognize if we know, for instance, the history of structuralism, but using biological models and moreover with an account for how these structures don't just drop out of the sky or that we don't just have to say, well, uh, we can't account, it's, it's epistemologically off limits to ask about their origin, etc. Um, and I don't think that that sort of gesture of just cordoning off that inquiry is very plausible at this point. Um, but then for... Um, yeah, I, you know, the Occam's razor remark, of course, goes a little bit of a way towards, uh, you know, answering the second thing. But also, I mean, I should say that part of what I was trying to highlight is there are problems that, for instance, Zizek, I think, leaves himself open to or potential difficulties he creates by having to posit this X. And moreover, to me, it's it, just having these sort of mysterious, inexplicable, uh, you know, things that are just, you know, put forward without any sense of how one could account for them uh, in a way that to me is compatible with at least if you're a materialist as he proclaims himself to be. You know, that's where I think that this becomes very difficult. And since it's superfluous and also, as I pointed out, not only superfluous, I think it carries, you know, certain uh, uh, ideological risks with it. Uh, you know, why go ahead and do that, especially when he has in his other work where he's not relying upon this, I think ample explanatory resources to get the job done. Yes. Well, it depends on, first of all, especially jouissance. I think, I mean, here you have, uh, you know, a Lacanian notion. I don't even want to say concept. I mean, more notion that has uh, any number of different permutations throughout various periods of his work. Um, and that also is not without its relation to, if you go back to the earlier period, you know, say classic 1950s Lacan, um, you know, even some of what I think he is getting at when he talks about uh, the status of need and the need-demand-desire triad. Uh, now... Lacan, in his later period, I mean, he emphasizes that you know aspects of jouissance for him are very much anchored in the body and have to do with a living body uh, that has these capacities for enjoyment. Um, and uh, I th and also one thing I should point out too, um, this piece, uh, the thematic of a weak nature, I work out in another essay which is coming out in a collection on Hegel that is uh, being published by the. Uh, Insurrection series at Columbia University Press. And one of the things that I do in this text, among others, is to show how what's typically taken to be Lacan's uh, vehement uh, opposition to any kind of naturalism or biology, in a way, misreads Lacan's remarks. I and mean, if you actually scrutinize him, what he's against is a certain biologism, um, specifically in terms of how biological discourse was appropriated by 1950s era, uh, primarily American ego psychologists, but to a certain extent, uh, British Kleinians and middle school object relations theorists. Um, and that for Lacan, um, there's a way in which at that point you're not talking about the science you're talking about a, an ideologically insidious mis
misappropriation of it for the purposes of propping up uh, discourse of normalization, adaptation, conformity, etc., right? Which for Lacan is, among other things, a deep betrayal of uh, what's at the heart of the Freudian experience and of analysis as a process that also has this ethical dimension to it. Um, so uh, for, for me, Lacan is the image of him as a standard sort of anti-naturalist is not actually really all that accurate. Um, and not only can you see this in later remarks that he makes about Jouissance and about the nature-culture distinction, um, and in fact, I should also reference, you know, there's, uh, there's some tracking of this in the Zizek's ontology book, too, um, especially in terms of the shelling material, which also appeared in that Lacan, the Silent Partners volume, where if you look at Lacan's late remarks from the 1970s when Jouissance is really playing this, you know, even more pivotal role than it did in prior years of his teaching, um, where he is actually uh, talking about the nature-culture distinction in ways that, in my view, very much dovetail with what I'm interested in pursuing here. Um, but to go back to his earlier work, for instance, this has hardly been commented on, but in, I mean, in one of the most read of Lacan's texts, right, the 1949 version of the mirror stage piece in the Ecrit, there are remarks that he makes in there about the brain, for instance, that foreshadow, among other things, things like neuroplasticity, that for whatever reason have just been passed over, I mean, it's almost like a kind of, you know, uh, you know, disavow fetishistic scotomization of this part of Lacan that just doesn't pop up. It's infrequent, but there are references to the brain which foreshadow this, and he even in some of the context where he mentions it, um, like Freud, anticipates a, an eventual kind of life scientific vindication of aspects of analysis that he considers to be very central. Um, so, you know, for me, Lacan is hardly uh, somebody who I'm having to kill off here as an inspiration, yet uh, a, a, a deeply uh, a, a hostile uh, sort of foe of what I'm trying to do here. But that's going to take a lot of work on my part, I think, to convince people of that because it does. Uh, go against the grain, I think, of a certain standard image of him as being more in line with the kind of dominant 20th century anti-naturalism and hostility to the natural sciences that you find in the continental tradition. Well, I well fantasy, one more yeah. question, okay. actually, because yeah. we're going to have a kind of time for a coffee break before the next session after this. So, last question. Yeah, it's kind of an ill-flowered idea, really. As you're talking about this distinction between nature and culture, it's yes. making me think of the times... Um, going out and report to sexuality, yes. um, non existence of the sexual report. And I wonder if it could fit in music to that. And it kind of brings this idea that, that between the distinction, this is the third axis, which is not really an axis at all, it's more yes. a possibility. That's what from a Lacanian perspective yes. is that the third is. It's not something, it's, yes. it's destined. Well, actually, thank you very much for that. That's a, a very nice, you know, further link into a, a part of Lacan uh, that I think is, uh, you know, that I, I do see the, the, the connection there very clearly. And I should also mention, you know, I made this, uh, I, I referenced this particular term which has started to be used uh, amongst certain uh, neuroscientists and cognitive scientists uh, that might not have been familiar to some of you, this term kludge, which, uh, K-L-U-D-G-E, uh, which is a term taken from engineering. And actually, it's, you could think of it as the kind of MacGyver approach where, all right, you, well, some, I, hopefully this is a reference as well enough known, where, all right, I've got a paper clip, some chewing gum, a rubber band, and, you know, I have to stop these terrorists, all right, you know, and you slap together some sort of improvised device uh, that manages to save the day, right? Uh, it, but it functions just well enough, right? It's hardly optimal, but it, it, it stumbles through and, and manages to produce something. Um, and um, 
there's this fellow who's a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins named David J. Linden who published a book in 2007 entitled The Accidental Mind. Uh, and then in 2008, this psychologist at NYU, Gary Marcus, published his book entitled Kluge. And, you know, in both cases, what's emphasized is that, you know, the human brain is very much like this, where it's this completely suboptimal hodgepodge of things plopped on top of each other um, that, you know, is really, you know, not well designed. I mean, it manages, you know, insofar as we can still, you know, screw and reproduce, you know, it's doing its job well enough. But, you know, above and beyond that, it's, you know, basically, you could think of it even in computer programming terms, has left all of these different bugs, glitches, you know, loopholes, etc., uh, that, you know, you can see manifest in various guises from the psychopathology of everyday life to full-blown, you know, extreme psychopathology. Um, and so, you know, even at this level, too, this idea that, you know, that... For Lacan, he broadens the notion of the non-existence of the sexual rapport in some of his final seminars in the late 70s, you know, to talk about going against the very cosmic vision of nature as this harmonious yin-yang going together, and to think of it instead as these elements slapped together that, you know, really out of sync with each other in various ways, right? Like Bruce Fink nicely describes, you know, the, you know, masculine and feminine sexuated positions as think of it like sine and cosine waves that don't coincide, right? That very much, too, right down to looking at the brain in this way, it seems as though, indeed, you know, we are saddled with this at the material level, and it just gets worse from there as our subjectivity gets structured by all these other mediating factors. Super. Right. right. Okay, well, Thank I you. think that's a good point to bring a close to a great paper and a very good Q&A session. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Mike informs me that you're free for maybe 10 minutes to... Okay. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to go grab coffee and, and then yes. reconvene yeah. in 10 minutes. Is there a recycling bin here, or do these just... Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, don't worry. I mean, it's not... Uh, Can you know. I just ask you one Yeah, absolutely. This kind of humanist, like, you should describe theological materialism as kind of context in terms. Why do you need to be a humanist? Like, in as much as your naturalism at the same time denatures nature and inflates nature, why do you have to have the baggage of human exceptionism? Like, I know you say there's everyday evidence and scientific evidence for the exception of the human, but most of the evidence is degrees of difference, not qualitative difference. Ah, but I think that this is where, yes, it's differences of degree, but it's so dramatic that there's a way in which... Apes. No, I don't. I actually don't buy this. This is where we definitely are on very different pages. I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a different quality level than the human. This is where it's tricky. No, I don't think it's tricky. Again, here's where I mentioned repeating angles. Like, when you go back and you find the 10th chapter of this dialectics of nature has a very interesting discussion of how one handles the issue of the relationship between humans and their nearest proximate Yes, 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 yes. All, yes. all of those. Yeah. yeah, and there's a weird it. way in which there's some of that lurking in the background in terms of how I might handle these sorts of issues. Um, you know, in terms of, and what's interesting, too, is that in ethics of neuroscience, the particular branch I'm most interested in in terms of the work I did with Malibu, um, that a lot of it is driven by, since it's not cognitive-style research, a lot of what it relies upon are cross-species uh, comparative analyses, but at the same time, even amongst those who are the most uh, enthusiastic and ardent uh, uh, advocates of uh, mammalian, mammalian lowest yeah. Nonetheless, is it, they all are very careful yeah, to be able to point to what they think is indeed the specificity of human, where they think, especially the advent of things like language, although we can not explicitly count for as much as they think does radically reconfigure aspects that you just don't see in the comparable But, yeah, it's... it's. I think it's, well, I think at that point you're probably reinvesting a set of... 
yeah, it's theological yeah, fact. It's almost theological. You're going to have to look for why you were doing How can you justify the spectrum other than the piece of vision that James Rensselaer No, I mean, some of it will come down to, I do think, sort of ground zero intuitions and drives on it, but I also think at the same time, what was I going to say? So I'm having like a little bit of a break here. Yeah, you guys turned the thought. I love your conversation. One thing I do have to do, and this actually came off as another discussion. There will be a need to radically rework what humanism means while retaining the modified term. Of course, yeah. And so that is, yes, 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 yes. Well, I'm going to have an event incorporation. Just the more human So in this sense, I have to sign you a promise that is something which does I don't. And I mean, it's just a matter of well, thanks very much. I'm going to hit the road again. Yes. Paper and uh, oh, well, thank you, moderating for coming and while you're in the midst of having your son visit, etc. I mean, I really appreciate it. Excellent. And I hope to, you know, I come, you know, I try to make it to the UK at least once a year. We'd love to have you on for maybe a couple of sessions. I couldn't make it. We have people kind of very busy for a week, and be like Andrew Benjamin. We had a couple of no again it was a pleasure thank you cheers oh thank you Sign me up as being a John Stanley. Oh my God! <laughs> Whatever it is, you're going to turn me beat red in no, just no, a second. I just, I, you know, the work that I'm doing right now with the Dorothy Morales is really very much closely aligned with the direction that you're going in right now. And yeah, because he's really integrating the thought of Malibu as well as the common energy check within his non-subjectivity. And so this is just perfect. For That's him. fantastic. It's been too if he's willing to share manuscript material. Because, you know, I have a little bit of a delay before I need to get around to really kind of writing the sort of okay. thing that's going to follow from this. And I would love to if he is comfortable. He knows me. Yeah, comfortable. yeah. He and I are very close. So, I mean, like, I would absolutely love to extend that. I mean, I'd love to get all of us working together on some level. But, I mean, just... No, I, I, no that will work out. And the thing is, too, when you do, you're coming up with this. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm heading with. That's what I'm heading with right now. I mean, I'm probably going to be where I end up. So. And if you need this, I mean, if you need um, yeah, next week, I'm working very much in this vein. With pleasure. Consider it, okay. Thank you consider it a done deal. Okay. It's just a matter of informing me okay. when the when the time comes. Sure. To do that. Sure. So what I'll do is I have your information. <laughs> I will email you. And I'll talk to I'm really interested in. And email me too. I'll send you the. I can send you yeah. this text okay, itself. Okay. I'm happy to. That's great. Yeah, and of course, like full description, obviously. Oh, don't worry about it. No, I know. Much, but just, oh yeah, just with the the, the audio is different. Yeah. <laughs> once I yeah, once I just get through the Cornell thing um, in the third week of April, yeah. then which I actually I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go to as well. Oh, that would be. I may I may be. It's such. I mean, generally the, the quality of the events there. I know most of the students as well, so it's kind of and they have a commonality. Conference coming up in uh, September, which they're bringing in um, Gombin. Uh, and the Gombin's now willing to fly into the US despite the Homeland Security So measures. either he's going to do that or he's going to go by video. I know Negri's going to do video video chat as well. Um, Franco Barati's going to be there. Rosie Brigatti, um, Michael Hart. Oh my God, when are the dates? 
yeah. September 24th or 25th. Okay, I might actually. Two, yeah. I'll be there. I think we're going to get Alberto on one of the panels. So. Um, and also, you have a chance to meet a lot of followers. Right. Right. Okay. Give you a sense too. Great. Great. I will definitely be there. Okay. Fantastic. No, no, no. Of course, but I just wanted to tell you how. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, and don't forget your camera. Or unless you're going to leave Okay, perfect. I've got to slip down just quickly to answer the call of nature, as it were. Uh, and, you know, and I'll be up in just a minute. All right. I don't think it's a 